Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. You'd be surprised at the vast history lying just beneath our feet. From remnants of channels carved deep below, to evidence of glaciers long gone, and hundreds of fossils waiting to be excavated. The known layers of rock underneath Melbourne date back some 400 million years, but that is just the beginning. Michael Webster is an engineering geologist at Golder Associates, who also lectures for the Master of Engineering here at the University of Melbourne. He's passionate about Victoria's geological history and its continuing evolving state. Michael and Golder Associates recently undertook geotechnical assessments of the testing ground site at the Arts Precinct of Melbourne for future development. Golder's experts developed 3D models of the geology of the site and the main model was 3D printed and featured in the exhibition Turning Digital Geology into Art, an underground journey into Melbourne's Arts Precinct. Art and science successfully mixed. Our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath, sat down to talk all things rock and soil with Michael Webster. Now, you lecture here on campus in geology. Yes, I do. I actually just came from one just now. So I lectured the Masters of Engineering students on the Engineering Geology of Melbourne and on site investigations. The lectures are ongoing, so I'm not going to give them any answers to the assignments for the end of the week. Oh, okay. If we were stalking you today, what revelation would we hear about Melbourne and its geology? People don't actually know all there is to know about it. So there's, as Donald Rumsfeld would say, lots of known unknowns and unknown unknowns in it. So there's some rock that's 400 plus million years old, 380 million years, and then there's nothing for the next 340 million years. So there's a big gap where we don't actually know anything. There's nothing recorded. So there's no evidence of dinosaurs in Melbourne at all. So you have to go down a fair way down to Gippsland or out Bacchus Marshway. But um, yeah, there's a huge gap in our geological history we don't know about. Is that because the layers are just not there telling us what happened during that era? Yeah, that's a pretty good way to look at it. So either they were never deposited in the first place, which is kind of unlikely over such a time period, or they were deposited and then scrubbed away. So out in Bacchus Marsh, for example, during a period called the Permian, there's actually evidence of glaciers. All right, so there's evidence of glaciers just outside of Melbourne, nothing recorded in that era at all around Melbourne. Some people might even say, don't we know everything about what's under the ground and like, let's just leave it there and if there's nothing important, um, what's there to do? Why do we care? Yeah, totally. So the answer is we know a little bit. We know, we, we've seen a window into it. But for example, we've the deepest we've drilled, I think from off the top of my head, is about 14 kilometres and that was done a long time ago. The radius of the Earth is about 6,300 kilometres. So, you know, already if you look at that and as a percentage, we haven't really gone very far. But more than that, everything that you do interacts with the ground, really, if you think about it. So even an aircraft has to land somewhere on a runway, and the runway has to be built to a certain standard on the ground. Your tunnels, your buildings, everything interacts with the ground, even if you don't think about it. And because of that, you need to understand a lot about what's going on. And because geology varies, it's a natural process, it's never the same. You can have completely different geology at sites that are next to each other. Do you have a research topic at the moment you're investigating? One of the big things that I'm 
particularly interested in is the neotectonics of Melbourne. So you might not know it, but we have very little earthquakes, even in central Melbourne, quite frequently. All right. So everyone knows about, well, a lot of people know about the earthquakes down in Gippsland or the Yachtways, but actually in Melbourne itself, there have been earthquakes. Have uh, there? They have very, I've not very little ones. Felt a thing. Oh, that's the thing. You'd have to, you'd have to be a, a seismic instrument to actually feel these ones, but they are there. They occur at all depths. Some of them quite deep. Some of them quite shallow. And um, I was actually in conversation with one of your colleagues from the geology department about them and about the location of them and where these fault structures go. It's, it's been fantastic. Well, do tell, why are they there? Well, they exist because of things that happened hundreds of millions of years ago. And these faults in the ground are formed by huge pressures. Um, think about places like the Western United States. They've got the big Cascade Range volcanoes over there, and we had something similar hundreds of millions of years ago where we are today. And the forces and the stresses broke the ground in these fault zones. And these fault zones, obviously the ground didn't heal itself. They're still there. And so the forces today, even though they are different, still exploit those weaknesses that exist in the ground. And so, you know, stress regimes change, things change, but those defects are still there, and you still get those earthquakes even today and that actually goes so far as not just earthquakes but the ground's lifting in different places in different ways that's sinking in other areas and you can sometimes draw pretty straight lines to actually see these things it's quite remarkable how do they actually measure that i've got in my mind these ancient chinese frogs that hold a ball in their mouth and if there's an earthquake <laughs> they drop the ball and that's how we know things are happening I think things have moved on since then. Just so a little bit. How do they measure earthquakes? So they, they use seismographs, so very, very sensitive equipment. It's uh, typically buried in the ground a little way so that you, um, you don't have any atmospheric influence and um, they measure very minor earth tremors. But these things, of course, if you've got heavy trucks driving by or you've got a variety of things, all of that will interfere with this equipment. But, um, yeah, things buried in the ground all over the place. And you can, uh, if you have three of them and they work out when the, the wave hits at each location, you can actually triangulate exactly where the earthquake occurred in three dimensions. And more than that, now we've even used things called interferometry where you have different wavelength stuff coming in from satellites down to the ground and all the way back up to space and they can measure minute changes across a large area to um, to work out if things are moving both um, horizontally but also vertically. So you can see in incredible detail, for example, London and the way it's broken up into a whole lot of different fault blocks. You don't think London is a place of earthquakes and active tectonics, but it is. It's moving all the time. In the case of large earthquakes, particularly the devastation that some of them can cause, are we better at predicting earthquakes? Unfortunately, not really. So... We know generally where the really nasty zones are. So, for example, Alaska, the Western United States, Japan, the Philippines, Indonesia, effectively the Pacific Rim of Fire is a great example. But there's an amazing study called um, the Lisbon Earthquake. It's in 1700 and something. It's described as the earthquake that killed God because it occurred on, I believe it was on All Souls Day or, sorry, All Saints Day or Christmas, one of the two. Everyone was in church. The earthquake struck. It was a magnitude nine estimated, which is an enormous earthquake. It's about the same one that hit Japan. Flattened the churches, flattened the city. The city caught on fire. Everyone ran to the harbor. Then a tsunami hit and killed all those people that ran down to the harbor. So it was a devastating earthquake. And the crazy thing is they still don't know why it occurred. 
because it's nowhere near anything geologically that's telling, telling you, watch out, there's an active fault and there's something going on. So they don't know why. So yes, you can predict that sometimes as to where it could be. You don't know when it's going to happen generally. You get a bit of a feel, maybe. But um, there are always these random events that are just, yeah, it's, it's crazy, but it's true. Okay, so there's still some work to be done. <laughs> just a few things to be done, yes. <laughs> okay, well, your, st- your students better get onto it. <laughs> oh, I know, neotectonics is a great topic. Tell me about your artwork endeavours. You've somehow combined geology and artwork. <laughs> yes, trust the art gallery to uh, manage to find an exhibition out of anything. But uh, yeah, so basically what I do as a day-to-day is build three-dimensional ground models. All right, so effectively, I'm trying to recreate in three dimensions what's happening in the ground. Of course, because there's a lot of history there, things cross-cutting each other, geological surfaces, uh, lava flows, there's two lava flows inside this model and a bunch of other things. Effectively, you get these beautiful layers cutting across each other, building up and up and up over, in this case, a series of about three, four million years, uh, all built up to the present day. And as a result of that, you get this really quite beautiful, intricate, three-dimensional picture, which we presented to the Art Centre more as a for your interest in information. And the Art Centre then said to us, we want to exhibit that. Can you print out some posters and such? And they, we said, sure. And then they said, we want to 3D print that. You okay with that? Sure. So we, we 3D printed the ground model in collaboration with the Art Centre and Development Victoria we put on an exhibition at the Testing Grounds, which is uh, on City Road and Sturt Street there. And um, it ran for a few weeks, and it was lovely to see people's interest and connection with the ground. I've always found that geology is its one of the more approachable sciences. So if people talk about gravity waves, it's absolutely fascinating, but, I mean, I've got no idea what I'm hearing or seeing. Whereas with geology, it's there, it's rivers, it's volcanoes, it's lava, it's all those things. It's it's, it's tangible. It is, it's, it's entirely visual. tangible. Yeah. That's right. It operates at a timescale that I myself really struggle with and most people don't appreciate. But it's there. You can touch it. You can see it. Exactly. Now, when you look at the layers of what's underneath us, you would have assigned colours to these. Because I was thinking... How can that be an artwork? I mean, isn't it all shades of brown and yellow? (laughs) But how does it work? Why does it become art? It's funny, isn't it? Because, yeah, you think it's all shades of brown and grey and green, and generally it actually is in the ground. Now, you're talking to a man who's colourblind, so I have been prescribed the uh, exact red, green, blue values that the Geological Survey of Victoria gave back in the day for the different geological units. However, originally... The first geological maps produced over in the United Kingdom were produced in such a way that the geologists at the time used the colour of each of the soils or rocks that he encountered and actually uh, used that to create the geological map. So their geological maps are very much those muted colours, but they're beautiful because you can actually see what's in reality. So if you were to go out into the central Australia, for example, and you have that beautiful, rich red colour, that's exactly what you would see on the geological maps should you have followed their their way of doing things. It was remarkable. It's beautiful. I guess it's not every day we hear the word geology and art in the same sentence. <laughs> no. And it's a genuine collaboration. Where to next with this project? Universities, actually. So we've talked to a number of universities just quietly about such things. Three-dimensional modelling is something that's not going away professionally. And in fact, now some contracting companies and uh, government bodies will refuse to deal with you if you are not 
producing things in three dimensions for a number of reasons. And so we've been promoting that for universities. And as part of that, what better way to promote it than to say, well, it's art, it's here, it's very pretty, and you can get exhibited. Michael, tell me about your career and some of the changes you've seen in geology or geology research. The great thing about it is from when I started to now, we have learned a lot. So we talked about is there if you know everything there is to know? The answer is no. We even within Melbourne we've discovered new geological units. I mean, for example, the the eastern half of Melbourne, according to the geological map, is all that old bedrock material, but we've found these deep, eighteen metre deep channels carved through the city that aren't noted. Um, and it's been wonderful to actually map these things out and uh, share that knowledge. Um, and the other big change that I can see is this, the shift from two dimensions to three dimensions. So that shift occurs because obviously now computers are getting more powerful, but people are asking a lot more of the information that you put forward. And so originally you'd get out your colored pencils, you'd draw on your borehole sticks and you'd connect the lines in a way that made geological sense. Now you get all of this information, you interrogate it, you draw it into three dimensions and you create these beautiful geological surfaces that are then incorporated into the geotechnical design and you can actually influence design in a significant way with this three-dimensional modelling such that they can shift the alignment of a tunnel or Um, change where a railway station is put, these kind of things. It's all very collaborative. What are some of the misconceptions people have about geology? You actually touched upon it before when you said that everything was known. So what you find is that people assume that the geological map of Melbourne is the answer and the memoirs that are written about the geological map are the answer and then you're effectively just, you know, plodding along site by site with already effectively the cheat sheet in front of you? And the answer is no. It changes so rapidly that everything you see is just a a generalisation of what's there, and even the generalisation isn't necessarily accurate. For example, the geological map was um, drawn in 1973, and it's built upon earlier works, but ultimately there was already a city on the geological map when the time came. So how could you possibly give an accurate representation of what's in the ground? And people tend not to think about that, and they just assume that, yeah, what you see is what you get, what has been done before is the answer. This doesn't even touch upon the fact that sometimes people actually came to the wrong conclusions. All right. So some of the geological units that were described previously were actually completely separate beasties from each other and they were just lumped together, but there's actually millions of years between them. They come from completely different origins, for example. What was thought to be riverine sediments actually was something called a tuff. It was an explosive volcanic event, and yet they were lumped in together with each other. Things like that. One burning question I've been dying to ask a geologist and I'm in the position to be able to do that now, right here, is do we still find new rocks? You know how biologists find new species or they might find a species they thought was extinct and it's come back. Um, Do geologists still find new types of rocks? In a way, yeah. So there are certain minerals and things like that that are unique to particular areas. So there's this um, this old fella out in Broken Hill and he's got his museum of minerals that he's found over the last however many um, dozens of years of working out there. 
and some of them are unique to his shed, basically. Like, he's found them out there, and that's it. They haven't been found anywhere else. And much in the same way, now, if you're actually talking about rock types and these kind of things, well, yes, but you're going to have to go to other planets, which is what they're doing, all right? So they're looking now in other areas and other places for interesting and different um, geology. And in fact, if you want to be an astronaut, one of the best careers to have is that of a geologist. You'd be surprised at how many geologists have made it into space. (laughs) So your students will probably find jobs. Michael, what advice do you give to your students? Everything that's come before you is an approximation and there is no one answer. All right. So the advice that I was given um, to do with this ground modeling is every ground model is wrong. Just some of them are useful. All right. And much in the same way, there is no one answer. If you ask 10 geologists to uh, draw you up the ground model with the same data, you'll get 10 completely different models. However, it's the way that you interpret the information to make geological sense and being able to communicate that with others, which differentiates you from anyone else. One of the big issues in society is about the sustainable soils of the future and that soils are disappearing. Are geologists contributing to this sort of future of soils as well? Not as much as you'd want them to. So... Geology and engineering in general is quite a conservative profession. And look, I get that. So, for example, concrete technology, there's technology out there now that it's a far more environmentally friendly version of what's happening uh, in the industry currently. However, if you're relying on this concrete to hold up a 70, 80 story building, you don't want to be on the experimental edge and, you know, if something goes wrong. However, I think that they can do more. So one of the areas that I studied in my undergraduate, which I'm disappointed to see not being adopted in Australia, however it is adopted overseas, is something called shallow geothermal energy. And shallow geothermal energy involves effectively storing and retrieving heat out of the ground. So in summer, you put heat into the ground, cool your building, and in winter, you pull that heat back out again and heat your building. And it's a far more efficient way of heating and cooling your building than what we use now. It's effectively like a delayed solar power in a way. I love that. So do I. Come on, everyone. Yeah. All right. PhD students? Yeah, that's right. Well, in fact, Melbourne University uh, PhD graduates in the field of shallow geothermal energy are now associates and principals at Golda, where I work. And we try and push this technology, but we find the industries to be a little bit on the conservative side. And I'd encourage universities in particular to try and adopt this uh, technology and prove that it works in Australian conditions and then be a leader to uh, industry to show that this is actually the way of the future. Needs a little dollop of entrepreneurial spirit and startup energy, I reckon. That's right. Come on, millennials, off you go. (laughs) You're the key. Michael, we love our experts to obsess, confess, and profess. I need a confession from you. You don't always get it right. So I'm an engineering geologist, so part of my work is engineering. And sometimes the geology surprises myself and it surprises others. And you don't always get it right. So things fall down, for example, and you just got to be mindful that your designs and your, um, your communication with others is such that you can actually accommodate that safely, that things aren't always as you expect them, as you model, as you predict. Next time we see some cutaway earth or next time we see an interesting rock sample, what do you want us to think about? Think about its history. 
So, for example, if you're driving along in Gippsland and you go to the side of the road down there, you might be able to find little fossils in the rock. And these things existed before trees were on the earth. And these little fellas were in a shallow sea environment and they were... They lived their little lives out there, but they lived in a time period that is so completely different that if you were to stand on the Australian continent, for a start, the eastern third would be missing, and the rest of it wouldn't have any vegetation at all. All their life at that time existed in the oceans. And it's just an appreciation that not everything you see today existed previously, and things always change, and it changes in such an imperceptible and slow way that we can't really appreciate it. So even the map of deep time, which is what's below the surface, is an ever-evolving thing. Absolutely, yes. The geologists enjoy fighting amongst themselves as to what constitutes different geological eras. And yes, our understanding is constantly evolving. Absolutely. Michael Webster, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you to Michael Webster, engineering geologist and lecturer at the Master of Engineering, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on September 17, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. The Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.